This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this series, I detail cases of missing persons who disappeared for months or even years leaving their loved ones behind searching for answers. When the truth is finally revealed, their families will be shocked to learn how close they were to uncovering the truth all along. In this week's episode, a teenage boy goes missing in 1984. Authorities would quickly decide that he was a runaway, but his family didn't agree and kept searching. Fourteen years later, his fate would be learned in a shocking and unusual way. This is Chapter 2 of this series, Buried Truth, The Disappearance of Christopher Allen DeNoyer. Christopher DeNoyer was having a tough time adjusting to his life since his parents' divorce. Mike and Dale DeNoyer had split up when Chris was still in grade school. By the time he reached his teens, both of his parents had remarried, and for Chris, things took a turn for the worse. Chris's mother, Dale, remarried a man named Jackson Viarda, and Chris and his younger sister, Sherry, moved to the central California town of Salinas with their mother and new stepfather. Chris was enrolled in North Salinas High School and joined the football team in his sophomore year. When Jackson, or Jack as he was more commonly called, married Dale, He not only became a husband, but also a stepfather of two children. Sherry and Chris remained in contact with their biological father, Michael, but Dale had retained physical custody after the divorce. Now that she remarried, her children were expected to accept a new father figure in the home, and things didn't always go so smoothly. Chris, in particular, struggled to accept Jack's authority and often balked at the rules that were set for him. Things became even more complicated when Dale and Jack added more children to the family. Dale now had her hands full with a teenage son, preteen daughter, and now two toddlers. She sometimes relied on her husband Jack to help her maintain order in the home, and Jack Viarda soon decided to take a firm hand with his stepson Chris. Jack Viarda was of the opinion that Dale's children were living in his house and should follow his rules. Viarda's rules, however, sometimes seemed arbitrary and capricious, and Chris began to complain about them and then ignored them altogether. Chris and his stepfather got into frequent arguments. Dill was often put in the middle between supporting her husband and defending her son. By 1983, Chris DeNoyer was a sophomore in high school and was an imposing figure on the football team, standing at 5 foot 10 inches tall and weighing close to 200 pounds. Jack Viarda was losing ground as he continued to try and exert his will at home by force and intimidation as his stepson grew into maturity. Jack himself was only 5 foot 5 inches tall and weighed over 60 pounds less than his teenage stepson. The tension and anger that often passed between the two of them made life at home more than a little stressful. It became so stressful at times that Chris left home more than once to get out from under his stepfather's thumb. He bounced back and forth between living with Dale and Jack and staying with his father. 
but his mother and stepfather didn't think Chris did well with the increased freedom he was afforded at his father's home. Michael DeNoyer monitored his son's daily schedule less and gave Chris a later curfew. His mother noticed that Chris's grades began to slip, so she had him move back home where she could provide a more structured environment. But once back in Salinas, Chris began to rebel even more against the rules imposed by his stepfather. Chris started smoking and skipping school, and his mother also caught him with alcohol. Jack Viarda tried to control Chris by enacting even stricter rules, and Chris grew even more angry and unhappy at home. When he couldn't take it any longer, Chris sometimes packed up a few belongings and ran to his grandmother, Annis, who lived about an hour north near Santa Cruz. His grandma could always make him feel better by lending an ear and just reminding Chris that he was loved very much. In the fall and winter of 1983, Chris continued having frequent arguments with his stepfather, but his social life had improved. He had a group of friends at North Salinas High, as well as his football teammates, but he'd also begun seeing a girl named Carlotta. He shared his troubles at home with his new girlfriend, and she was good at drawing him out of these moods. With Carlotta, Chris could relax and enjoy just being a normal teen in love. Carlotta saw the other side of Chris at these times, the sweet, quiet boy who just wanted to fit in. But according to his stepfather, Chris was disrespectful and ungrateful. Jack Viarda treated his stepson like a burden. Viarda even drew a line in the sand over food Chris consumed. He took to labeling food and drinks he didn't want his stepson to touch. They would read, Jack's only, or don't touch. Once when he noticed that a can was missing from a 12-pack of beverages he'd purchased, Viarda dumped the rest of them down the drain to teach his stepson a lesson. Others would later remark that it was obvious that Jack Viarda treated his biological children and his stepchildren very differently. Viarda, they said, was especially strict and punitive towards Chris, who rebelled against his rules. In early January of 1984, Chris arrived at his girlfriend's house in tears. One of his dogs had fallen ill and died. It was discovered that somehow the poor pup had gotten into gopher poison. Chris was devastated. On top of the stress he was experiencing due to frequent arguments with his mom and stepfather, this was almost too much for Chris to take. He told his sister Sherry that he wished he could just run away. He had expressed this opinion before, but hadn't acted upon it except for a couple of times when he'd taken refuge at his grandmother's. But a little over a week later, on Friday, January 13th, Jackson Viarda called his wife at work. Chris, he told Dale, had run away. Dale Viarda raced home from work after hearing that her son was gone. She checked his room, but didn't notice anything missing. All his clothing was still in his closet, and their suitcases were all accounted for. She called Chris's girlfriend, Carlotta, to ask if she'd seen him. She said that she hadn't seen or talked to Chris that day. Dale figured, since he hadn't taken anything with him, he was probably just blowing off steam and would return home soon. She called every place she could think of where he might have gone, but there was no sign of him. When Chris didn't return home by that evening, Dale filed a missing persons report with the Salinas Police Department. When officers took the report, they were told that Chris had been unhappy at home and had been having arguments with his parents. They right away believed that Chris was most likely a runaway that would return home when he ran out of couches to sleep on or cash to spend. 
This was typically how these cases were resolved, they explained to Dale. They told her not to worry. He'd most likely return soon. This temporarily made the frantic mom feel a little better, but she had a distinct sense that something was very wrong. A mom just knows, she thought. Chris had been missing for three days when Dale received a Western Union telegram. Mom, it began, I'm fine. I'm on my way to Newport Beach. I couldn't stay there anymore, and I'm sorry I had to leave. I wish I could have continued to go to school there, but Jack was right in some ways. Chris went on to say he was sorry for his part in causing trouble at home and asked his mother to take care of his things. He signed off with, I'll see you when I'm in the NFL, Chris. Both Dale and Chris's sister Sherry were surprised and somewhat suspicious of the telegram. Would Chris even know how to send a telegram, they wondered? And what was that line about, see you when I'm in the NFL? Chris had never talked about playing football professionally. In fact, he wasn't even sure he was going to continue to play for the school the following year. The telegram didn't ease Dale's worries, and she reported her suspicions to the police, letting them know that her son was still missing. But once they heard about the telegram, the police considered the matter closed. The boy was a runaway like they'd suspected, and the case wasn't pursued much further. Dale continued to search on her own. She printed up flyers with Chris's photo and description and had them posted for miles around. She also traveled highways up and down the state, leaving the flyers at truck stops and gas stations in hopes that someone would recognize Chris or that Chris himself would see it and call home. But Chris remained missing as weeks turned to months and then years. Dale continued to search and followed up on every lead. Over the years, there were calls from people who reported sightings of Krista Neuer as far away as Reno, Nevada and the Grand Canyon. Dale traveled to each place, but continued to be disappointed when these leads didn't pan out. Five years after Chris's disappearance, Dale, Jackson, and their children moved out of the home on Navajo Drive and to the nearby town of Marina. Dale left word with the home's new owners about her missing son asking them to please contact her should anyone matching his description ever ring their doorbell. She hated to think that Chris would return home, only to find them gone, and she'd miss her chance to ever welcome her boy home again. By 1998, the Villarta house had been sold a second time, this time to a young couple, Diana and Eric Carbajal. They purchased the five-bedroom, 2,200-square-foot house on Navajo Drive in 1995 and set about making it their own. They had been living in the home for a little over two years when they decided to expand the heating ducts under the house to better accommodate the upgraded HVAC system they'd installed. Eric and his father accessed the crawl space underneath the house for the planned work. The crawl space was very tight, with only about a two-foot clearance from the tightly packed dirt to the wood frame above it. There was a trap door to access the space in the floor of the kitchen's pantry. Eric could only move around under the house by sliding on his stomach. His father stayed above, handing him a flashlight, which was used to illuminate the dark, cobweb-infested crawl space. It was dirty work, and Eric would be glad to be done with the work under this cramped and claustrophobic space. As he cast the flashlight beam across the dirt floor, he noticed something peculiar. Shining the light in one area a few feet from the trap door toward the middle of the crawl space, 
he saw what appeared to be a shoe, specifically a tennis shoe. Only the tip could be seen, with the toe pointing oddly straight up from the dirt. It was kind of creepy, he thought, and later that night, he told his wife about it. They wondered if it might have been a joke or prank one of the previous residents had rigged to spook the new owners, like the stories where someone builds a deck or other structure over a plastic skeleton as a way to prank the next owners. They laughed it off and forgot all about the weird shoe in the crawl space. But just a couple of weeks later, Diana retrieved their mail from the mailbox and found a letter informing the new owners that a young boy had gone missing in 1984, 14 years earlier. The 16-year-old named Chris DeNoyer had last lived at the home they now occupied. The letter provided a few details, including a description of the missing boy, and asked them to contact police or the family should they ever see him. Diana and Eric wondered if the shoe under the house and the missing boy could be connected. It was highly unlikely, they thought, but they couldn't help speculating. Diana's sister happened to be visiting, and the couple shared the odd story with her. The three jokingly dared one another to go under the house to investigate. Finally, Diana's sister agreed to be the one to brave the crawl space. She went down through the trap door in the kitchen and wriggled on her stomach until she saw the tennis shoe. She reached out to grab it, but as she pulled it toward her, it seemed to be stuck on something. She tried to free it, but it wouldn't budge. A chill washed over her, and all of a sudden, she felt a strong need to get out of the crawl space. She hurried through the trapdoor and back into the light of the kitchen. The Carbajals decided to call the police about their find. When officers arrived to investigate, the couple told them about the letter regarding the missing boy and what they had discovered under the house. The police at first seemed skeptical, but the homeowners seemed so shaken they decided to check it out. One of the more slightly built officers was given the task of entering the crawl space. He saw the shoe tip right away. He tugged on it and was able to move it toward him. But it wasn't just a shoe he found in his hand, but also a sock was attached. And attached to that, the officer saw what could only be a human bone. On January 14, 1998, homicide detectives from the Salinas Police Department were called to a home on Navajo Drive to investigate a possible finding of human remains. The bones were found in a very tight space located under the home's kitchen floor. Police received permission from the homeowners to remove some of the floorboards and subfloor to get a better look. When they did, they discovered a very well-preserved and intact human skeleton buried in a very shallow grave. The body appeared to have been fully clothed when it was buried. There were still remnants of tattered and disintegrated clothing, including blue jeans, a t-shirt, socks, and shoes still clinging to the body. Detectives took care to preserve any evidence that might help them discover the identity of the person or their cause of death. They called Dr. Allison Galloway, a forensic anthropologist from the University of Santa Cruz Anthropology Department, to help them retrieve and examine the remains. Dr. Galloway and her team members carefully removed the skeletal remains and sifted through the dirt around it to uncover any evidence left behind. She determined that the skeleton was that of a male and had probably been under the house for quite some time. It had been well-preserved in the cool, dry space under the floor. The bones were mostly intact and had not yet begun to disintegrate. 
Dr. Galloway noted that there was no odor of decay and no soft tissue was left on the body. It would take between 5 to 50 years for the body to decompose to this state, she said. Other items were found by carefully sifting through the dirt under the house. These included a set of keys and a cigarette lighter, and most importantly, a single 38 caliber bullet, its jacket corroded but still intact. The remains were transported to Dr. Galloway's anthropology lab for analysis. She was able to determine that they were those of an adolescent male, approximately 5 foot 10 inches tall. By carefully examining the bones, she was also able to speculate as to the cause of death. Two bullet holes were found in the side and back of the skull. The placement of these injuries led her to conclude that the victim had died when one of the bullets had entered on the left side of the skull, traveled through the brain, and out of the other side. There was also damage to a couple of the rib bones, which Dr. Galloway said resulted from another bullet being fired into the back. With this piece of evidence, Detectives now begin investigating the case as a homicide. The first thing investigators needed to know was the identity of their victim. No identification was found on the body. Detective Sergeant Bob Eggers was assigned to the case and began by cross-referencing the address where the discovery was made to police records. He found a missing persons report that had been filed by the previous owner of the Navajo Drive residence in 1984, 14 years earlier. The missing person had been listed as 16-year-old Christopher Ellen DeNoyer, a white male who stood 5 foot 10 inches tall and weighed approximately 200 pounds. He'd been last seen on January 13th and was reported missing the next day by his mother, Dale DeNoyer Viarda. Sergeant Eggers could see that the missing boy's physical description was a close match to the one Dr. Galloway had compiled after examining the skeleton. The detective next sought to positively determine whether or not the victim was the 16-year-old reported missing. He was able to find a Salinas dentist who had seen Chris as a patient in the early 1980s and luckily still had his dental x-rays on file. The dental records were compared to the photos and x-rays from Dr. Galloway's examination of the body. The dentist determined that a dental retainer found attached to the lower jaw in the skull was the same type used back in the early 1980s. Comparing the two dental x-rays, the dentist was able to report that they were a match. The body found under the house was identified as Christopher DeNoyer. The fact that the victim was discovered buried underneath his own home caused the detective to suspect someone who also lived in the home at that time was likely responsible for his death. Investigators needed to question someone other than the boy's family members to determine what may have happened without immediately tipping off possible suspects. Looking through the file on Chris DeNoyer, Eggers noted that the teen's girlfriend had been interviewed when the boy had gone missing. He was able to track down Chris's high school girlfriend, Carlotta Davis. Carlotta was visited by the detective with the grim news that the body of Christopher DeNoyer had been found buried under his own house. She was stunned. She told the detective that she and Chris met a year before he went missing and had dated up until that time. She said she never believed he'd run away because he wouldn't have left without saying goodbye. She also said that Chris and his stepfather, Jackson Viarda, had not gotten along. They argued frequently, and Viarda was, quote, always on Chris about something, end quote. Next, the detective tracked down Chris's younger sister, Sherry, who was now living in Ohio. 
She also told Sergeant Eggers that there was bad blood between her brother and stepfather. Jack Biarda was very strict, Sherry said, and Chris was not at all happy at being forced to follow his rules. Biarda never let up, though, and problems between Chris and Jack continued to escalate, the detective learned. Sherry was also shocked to find out that her brother had been murdered and found buried under her childhood home. She said she always suspected he hadn't run away, but had held out hope all these years that Chris was still alive somewhere. Eggers asked Sherry what he'd been wondering since the body was discovered. Didn't anyone in the family smell the body decomposing right underneath their kitchen? Sherry said she had smelled a terrible odor that had lingered for weeks, but remembered her parents explaining it was probably a dead snake that had crawled under the house. Sergeant Eggers had previously had the unfortunate experience of being exposed to the odor of a decomposing body more than once. There was no way someone could mistake it for the smell of a dead snake or mouse or rat or anything else for that matter, he thought. The smell was very strong and completely unmistakable. No, he concluded, if Jack and Del Viardis said they hadn't smelled anything, they were either in deep denial or complicit in the crime. He intended to find out which one it was. Sergeant Eggers was able to interview Dale Viarda first without her husband present. They were still married and living in Marina, California, just a 10-minute drive from their first home on Navajo Drive, but closer to Monterey Bay. Dale, at this time, was also pregnant with their fourth child. Dale was questioned about her son, who went missing in 1984. The detective asked her to tell him what she recalled from January 13th of that year. Dale said she'd been at work the day Chris went missing. It was her husband Jackson who had called her to say that Chris had run away. She described searching for her son and then filing the missing persons report. She told him about the telegram she'd received three days later and showed it to the detective. One line in the telegram that was purportedly from Chris stood out to the detective. It read, quote, Jack was right in some ways. Chris had then apologized for his behavior. The detective had learned from witnesses that Chris hated his stepfather and living with him made the boy so unhappy he'd sometimes threaten to run away. It seemed highly suspect to him that the teen would have offered the opinion after doing so that his stepfather was, quote, right. Now Eggers had to inform Chris's mother that her son was dead and his body had been buried right under the home she had occupied for five years after his disappearance. Dill was stunned and devastated. She had long suspected that her son was no longer alive, but hadn't allowed herself to give up hope that he'd one day return. Now she was forced to face the fact that she would never see her child again. After composing herself, Dale told Eggers she had long suspected the telegram was a fake. She and her daughter had agreed that the wording of it didn't sound like Chris. She also didn't think her son would have known how to send a telegram. Dale believed that he would have just called her if he had been able to do so. She also shared that it never rang true that he'd left without taking any of his most prized possessions, his boombox, his music, and a box of personal letters. All of these items were things he took without fail any time he left home for any length of time. After meeting with Chris's mother, Eggers didn't think she was a viable suspect. One thing he'd been thinking about through all of these interviews was the place where Chris had been buried. It had been a very tight squeeze, and he wondered who could have fit down there with enough room to dig a grave and bury a body in such a short amount of time. 
It had only been a few hours from the last time Chris was known to be alive and when Dale returned home to discover him missing. The detective discovered that in January of 1984, Dale Viarda had been pregnant. It was very unlikely that she would have been able to fit in the crawlspace to bury the body. In addition, Eggers could see that she had been genuinely shocked and saddened to learn that her son was no longer alive. He asked Dale about her son's relationship with his stepfather, and she admitted that they had not liked each other at all. Then she was asked if there had been guns in the home. Dale said that her husband Jackson was a gun owner and had kept at least one weapon in the house since she could remember. The next stop investigators would make would be to talk to Jackson Viarda himself. Jackson Viarda, now age 43, was still employed by the phone company. Investigators were able to catch up with him at his workplace. The first thing they noticed was that Viarda was not a big man. He stood about 5 foot 5 inches tall and weighed under 150 pounds. He was cooperative and willing to talk to detectives regarding his missing stepson. When asked about his relationship with Chris, Viarda admitted that he'd had problems with the boy. It was the usual things that parents argue with their children about, he said, homework, curfews, and chores. They asked him to describe what he remembered from the day Chris went missing. Viarda said he'd been at work all day on that Friday the 13th. He'd worked from 12 to 8 p.m., he recalled. When he'd returned home that evening, he told detectives his wife had told him that Chris had run away. This directly contradicted what Dale had told them. Viarda was then asked if he owned a gun. Yes, he said. He owned two, a 22 caliber rifle and a 38 caliber revolver. Viarda was then informed that his stepson had been found buried under his former residence in Salinas and that he'd been shot. Eggers described Viarda as remarkably calm upon hearing the news. He was then informed that he was being investigated as a suspect. Still, Eggers said, there was no reaction. When asked about the smell under the house that his wife and daughter had reported, Viarda said he didn't recall such a smell. They obtained a search warrant for the Viarda home, which was served not long after they first interviewed their suspect. Among other items, police collected guns from the home, including a Colt Python 357 caliber revolver. Ballistics tests would be conducted to determine if the bullet found with the body had been fired from this weapon. Records from 1984 were also collected from Viarda's home. It would appear that Viarda threw nothing away. Letters, bills, bank statements, and even phone bills from 1984 were found filed among Viarda's papers. In his records from January of 1984, a charge was discovered for a Western Union telegram that was ordered from and billed to Viarda's home phone account. On February 6, 1999, Jackson Viarda was arrested on suspicion of murder and held on $1 million bail. He was booked into the Monterey County Jail. He would plead not guilty to the charges. His arrest occurred just 11 days after his stepson's remains were found buried under the family home, and 15 years after Krista Neuer was reported missing. The community was shocked to learn that a North Salinas high school student had been found murdered and buried in a shallow grave under his family's kitchen floor which went undiscovered for 15 years. But residents of Monterey County were divided, with friends and co-workers of Jackson Viarda supporting the father of four, unable to believe he could have committed the crime he was accused of. 
They knew Viarda as a loving parent and upstanding citizen. However, none of them would go on the record when asked to comment by reporters. On the other hand, Chris's family members and friends were eager for the day that Jackson Viarda would face justice and hoped he would receive the maximum penalty allowed by law. Reporters from The Californian, Salinas' local newspaper, spoke with the family members after Viarda's arrest. Chris's stepmother, Valerie DeNoyer, said that Chris and his stepfather had a volatile relationship. Jack Viarda tried to break him, Valerie said, but he couldn't. Chris's grandmother, Annis DeNoyer, was heartbroken over the loss of her grandson. She spoke plainly to interviewers, saying, The problem was that his stepfather did not like him. Chris wasn't his own child, and he didn't want him around. She went on to say, I've always known that something terrible happened to Chris. He loved me so much, she said, her eyes welling with tears. He turned to me when he needed me, and I always knew he would have called me if he could. He never did. The murder trial began in June of 1999. The prosecution told the jury that Jackson Viarda was the only person with the means, motive, and opportunity to kill Christopher DeNoyer. The motive, according to prosecutors, was that Jackson Viarda hated his stepson. He and Chris had argued often, and Viarda had become more irate as Chris continued to rebel against his rules. The final confrontation, the prosecutor theorized, was over the death of Chris's dog. Chris suspected Viarda of deliberately poisoning the pet he loved, and on that Friday, when only the two of them were home, they had gotten into a heated confrontation about it. Viarda, in a fit of rage, and no match for Chris physically, had grabbed his gun and shot his teenage stepson three times killing him, prosecutors said. Scott Armstrong, a senior criminalist for the State Department of Justice, testified that microscopic comparisons between the test-fired bullets and the corroded jacket found among the skeletal remains were unequivocal proof that the gun belonging to Viarda had fired the bullet. The defendant, they said, was the only person who would have been physically strong enough to drag Chris's 5-foot-10-inch body down into the crawl space, and also small enough to fit into the 2-foot-tall crawl space to bury him. Investigators had conducted a reenactment using an officer who was about the same size as the defendant. They videotaped him digging a hole 2 feet deep and 6 feet long in the crawl space. They determined that it would have taken about an hour to bury the body. Not only would the killer need to have had access to the inside of the house, as the only entry to the crawl space was from inside the kitchen, but also knowledge of the family member's schedules to plan for the time it would take to conceal the body without being caught. Witnesses testified for the prosecution about events that occurred after Chris was reported missing. Dale had spent many hours putting up flyers about her missing son and following up on leads around the state and beyond. She had spent eight years looking for Chris. Jackson, on the other hand, had been annoyed with the amount of time his wife spent searching. One co-worker of hers testified that Jackson Viarda had told her that, quote, Dale was wasting her time looking for Chris. Nor, witnesses said, did Jackson himself make any attempt to help search for his stepson. Chris's sister Sherry testified about the foul smell that lingered in their house for weeks in early 1984. When she and her mother complained about it, Sherry said her stepfather claimed he didn't smell anything. Prosecutors also provided evidence to the jury that Viarda had shredded or burned some documents after the body was discovered and he became aware that he was being investigated. Finally, they presented the evidence that Jackson Viarda himself had been the one who sent the Western Union telegram to convince everyone that Chris had run away. 
The artist's defense attorney told the jury that Kristen Neuer, quote, ran with a fast crowd, and any one of his associates might have killed him and hidden the body. Chris, the defense insisted, had run away and had sent the telegram. But when he'd returned home to retrieve his belongings, he had brought along one of these associates who had shot Chris and hid his body under the house. The artist's attorney painted Kristen Neuer as a teen who experimented with drugs and weapons. The weapons Chris carried were described as a butterfly knife and a set of brass knuckles. Those kind of weapons, the defense claimed, were unnecessary for someone without enemies. However, he did not specifically say why one of Chris's acquaintances had motive to kill him. Nothing was stolen from the house, and there was no evidence presented that Chris had problems with anyone else besides his stepfather. Also, why take the time to hide the body, and in the victim's own house, if he had no personal connection to Chris or his family? After two weeks, the case went to the jury for deliberation. After a full seven days of trying to come to a unanimous decision, the jury returned to say they were hopelessly deadlocked. The vote was nine for conviction and three for acquittal. The judge had no choice but to declare a mistrial. Viarda remained in custody. It was reported later that one of the jurors was employed at Soledad State Prison. She refused to vote to convict because, quote, she knew what happened to people in prison and couldn't bring herself to send the defendant there. A year after Jackson Viarda was arrested for the murder of his stepson, his second trial began. This time, the proceedings would last just one week. The prosecution planned to call fewer witnesses while essentially presenting the same evidence as they had in the first trial. Exactly one week after it began, Jackson Viarda was found guilty of second-degree murder with an enhancement added on for using a gun during the commission of a felony. The second-degree conviction carried a sentence of 15 years to life. Viarda was ultimately given a sentence of 17 years to life with the added enhancement. The prosecutor had sought a conviction for first-degree murder, but was content with the conviction for second-degree. It would have been difficult to prove that the crime had been premeditated after so many years, he said after the verdict. We don't have a lot of facts about how events unfolded the day Chris was killed, he conceded. When asked for his reaction to the verdict, Chris's father, Mike DeNoyer, sounded relieved as he said, It's finally over. We looked for Chris for 15 years. Deputy District Attorney Berkeley Brannon also expressed relief. It almost worked, he said, of Viarda's efforts to cover up the crime. If he had just dug the hole a little deeper, it would have never been discovered. Chris's former girlfriend said, I'm just glad it's over and a jury finally saw the truth. Dale Viarda filed for divorce from her husband shortly after giving birth to their fourth child, a girl. In 2002, the Discovery Channel sent a crew to Salinas to film an episode of The New Detectives. The show would profile the 1984 disappearance of Chris DeNoyer and the 1998 discovery of his body found buried under his home on Navajo Drive. A neighbor volunteered her home for the filming when the owners of the Viarda's former residence declined to participate. The episode was aired in Season 8, Episode 7, and is titled Grave Secrets. If you watch it, you'll note that they have taken a few creative liberties in the telling of how the body was discovered. I've shared the actual events that led up to the discovery in this episode as recorded in trial transcripts. 
Jackson Viarda appealed his sentence, stating that, among other things, the testimony about Chris's dog being poisoned should not have been allowed into the trial. His appeals attorney also argued that the video demonstrating how someone could dig a grave in the small crawl space also should have been inadmissible. The 6th District Court of Appeals rejected these arguments and upheld Viarda's sentence. They ruled that there was sufficient evidence that Viarda had poisoned the dog to allow this testimony in. It was also ruled that the demonstration presented by the prosecution was relevant to point to the killer as someone who had access to the house and knowledge of its resident schedules. Viarda first became eligible for a parole suitability hearing in 2008. He came before the board in 2009, but was denied. He will be given another chance to convince the parole board of his suitability sometime this year. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. What do you think? Do you wonder, as I did, how Chris DeNoyer's family could have missed the red flags that he had met with foul play? Is the idea of one family member committing murder against another too horrible for people to fathom that they unconsciously remain in a state of denial? I'll be discussing these questions and more with listeners later this week by video chat. You can join us by following the Once Upon a Crime page on Facebook to get access and information on when we'll go live. You can now send and receive texts from Once Upon a Crime if you opt in by texting OUAC to 408-676-1770. That's the letters OUAC to 408-676-1770. Text messaging is provided by Text Sanity. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Our administrative research and production assistant is Lorena Garcia. Our copy editor is Crystal Dernan. An original music and final sound mix is by Aaron Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Bye.